Hey everyone, I'm Maria Sansone. Welcome to another edition of Mom to Mom. I've got a question for you. Are you a helicopter parent? Do you even know what that means? You might not know you're doing it. For example, do you have a we problem? As in, we have a play date, we have swim lessons, we didn't get into Harvard. You know what I'm talking about? Well, my guest today, Julie Lifcott-Hames, challenges all of that. She's the New York Times bestselling author of the Anti-Helicopter Parenting Manifesto, How to Raise an Adult. She challenges parents to look at what actually will set their children and themselves up for success. She'll define overparenting and offer tips to sharpen our intentions. Here's my conversation with Julie Lithcott-Hames. Julie, how are you? Maria, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I love your background there. Are you actually in a real life she shed? I am in a real life she shed. It's 12 by 8, 96 square feet in my backyard, 10 steps from my kitchen door, which is just enough distance to help me kind of reset, reframe when I go from home to work. I've heard of these things. I've seen them talked about like on HGTV, but I kind of thought it was like the unicorn of momhood. People didn't actually have them. <laughs> you know what? I got it um, mostly because I was trying to write books. I wrote my first book in our bedroom and a small desk crammed between our bed and our closet. And my partner, husband looked at me and was like, do you need more space? And I said, yes. And I started working at a co-working facility to finish that book. But then when it came time to write the second one, uh, we put our heads together and realized I needed a tiny office. So that's what this is. Less an escape from the, you know, less a mom refuge and, but it is definitely a mom refuge um, and more a little office for me. I love it. All right. So let's talk about this book that you've been working on, uh, how to raise an adult. I can't think of anything more important. So what inspired you? You could have done a lot of things. You have done a lot of things in your career. What inspired you to get into this parenting space? Fierce passion and concern for humans thriving. So here I was a Dean at Stanford university, which is right up the road from me. Uh, uh I was, there from 98 to 2012. And in those, the early set of those years, I began to observe how involved parents were in the day-to-day -day management of life for their college student. And what I was seeing at Stanford, other administrators and faculty were seeing on every campus around the country. It wasn't a Stanford thing. It was that childhood had changed and we were noticing the changes because now um, how parents behaved vis-a-vis -vis their college student was changing. And I grew concerned, Maria, because I realized that it doesn't matter how high your GPA is or how impressive your resume is as a college student, if you can't make a routine decision, if you can't solve a run-of-the-mill problem, if you can't cope with the routine setbacks of life, if you can't advocate for yourself to an authority figure, what can you do? You know, it, it seemed like too many students were still being led on a leash down the path of life by very well-meaning parents, but I could see the cumulative negative effect of that, which was that they were, they lacked agency, a sense of, I can, I can handle it. They lacked resilience. I can cope when things go badly. They were accustomed to a parent making sure that their road was always straight and narrow, manicured and clean and clear. And so I wrote this book not to become a parenting expert. I mean, I do have my own two kids who are 22 and 20. Um, I love kids. I love being a parent, but I wrote this out of a fierce advocacy for the imperative that our young people be raised 
uh, to be able to fend for themselves because we'll be dead and gone one day. Let me be that blunt. We'll be dead and gone. And we're supposed to have taught our kids how to do everything instead of um, creating a dependence on us uh, that creates the impression that we will handle everything for them. And like you said, these are well-meaning parents who think that they're doing the right thing by intercepting every bad thing that ever happens and, you know, getting Uber involved in everything. Is this what you would consider helicopter parenting? Absolutely. Helicopter parenting comes in three types. The overprotective parent who wants to bubble wrap their kid, uh, prepare the road for the kid instead of preparing the kid for the road, uh, just worried about everything, constantly has to hover over everything and watch. There's the over-directive parent who says, you will be a doctor, you will be a tennis star. I will decide the path of life. You will march down. I will condition my love for you on the, on the basis of whether you achieve my plans for you. And the third type is the, uh, oh, I just want to make your childhood easier. The concierge, the best friend, let me handle it. Let me fix it. Let me manage it. Let me show up with my little clipboard and check off the tasks you know, that I need to remind you to do. Sort of like the kid is an A-list celebrity. <laughs> All of these things are lovingly intended. Like I've kept you safe. I've created a plan. I've held your hand. But the point is that life is a, to, to live is an active verb and we must not live our children's lives for them. We need to stand alongside them, keep them safe from the big harms, but let life teach them the lessons it will when they try and have a bit of a wobble and they try again and they flounder a bit and so on and so forth. That's how they learn. That's how they get stronger. That's how they get emotionally resilient. No question that a lot of parents now are parenting in the ways that you just mentioned. All of those things that you describe as helicopter parents. How did we get here? Because I don't know about you, but my parents didn't act like any of those things. I'm an early 80s, very early 80s kid. Um, when did this happen and why? You were like the last band of the free range children, Maria. <laughs> it happened in the mid eighties. We began to see the aggregate of a bunch of changes in childhood that really conspired to change childhood itself. The play date was born. So we went from kids arranging their own play to parents having to arrange it and manage yes. it. Stranger danger was born. Can't go anywhere. This fear of a horrific thing, which is, of course, horrific, but it so rarely happens. It's not something we should have structured or restructured childhood around. Uh, to put it differently, our kids are more likely to be uh, harmed by a family member, uh, far more likely to be harmed by a family member than by some stranger. Um, they're far more likely to be um, severely injured in a car than at the hands of a stranger. So we just have created a childhood around this very unlikely thing. Um, so it sounds like fear plays a big fear. part of this. Absolutely. But also the self-esteem movement came about in the mid eighties um, out here in California is I think where it started the notion of ribbons and trophies and certificates and awards just for showing up, just for being on the team. Um, the sense that kids need a lot of applause and approval. So we parents started showing up on the sidelines of their activities, just sort of attending their every micro moment and telling them how amazing they were and when you and I were growing up, they protected us from the poison in the kitchen sink or in the in the garage, right? But now we have little latches and hooks and soft things on every single surface. Again, we're not we're not teaching our child, hey, you gotta you know be careful when you you're up against that sharp corner. We make sure there are no sharp corners. So we're not preparing them for the sharp corners of life because childhood no longer has any sharp corners. But it sounds like, you know, all of these things are meant for our kids' safety 
and well-being, obviously there's a time to step in and a time to not step in. We have won the parenting game when our kid can be independent of us. So then how do they get independent? Well, they have to learn every single thing. Well, how do they learn? They learn by doing, okay? We can do it more quickly, more efficiently, more neatly. Like we can stack that dishwasher, but if we always stack the dishwasher, our kid will never learn. So we're supposed to want them to learn the various skills of life, how to make a grilled cheese on the stove. I would never let my kid use the stove. It's hot. Well, when do you expect to teach your kid how to make a meal on the stove? Because at some point they become this 18 year old who's never been allowed to use the stove and they feel ridiculous and look ridiculous in the world because they've been deprived of these learning opportunities. So the way that I think of it is, it's almost like a game of bowling you know like you're at a bowling alley for those of you who've ever bowled it's like this long thing that you're supposed to throw your ball down and hit the 10 pins and there are these bumpers that can go up to make sure your ball doesn't go off into the gutter okay that's what we do when people are beginning bowling we put the bu the bumpers up so they don't just completely fail okay that's where parenting should be right you want to make sure your kid doesn't fall into the ocean walk into traffic like fall off a cliff you're guardrails are to life and death. Like I, I need to keep them safe and sound. But today's parenting, we've brought the bumpers in like this so that the kid just has to throw the ball. And of course it's going to hit the 10 pins because there's no room for wavering. This room for wavering, like, oh, I threw it this, whoops, whoops, whoops. Like that's normal childhood that they're supposed to try and fail and try again. And ultimately they're the one that can hit the 10 pins instead of us being like, don't worry, kid, you've got this, right? Yes. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but first, a huge shout out to our sponsor, Hood Sour Cream. Hood Sour Cream is made with real hood milk and cream, so I know I'm giving my family the good stuff. I love to have it on hand to whip up a quick dip when I'm in a pinch. So, Julie, I listened to your TED Talk just before this, and... It was so spot on. You nailed so many things. So I want to dig into that a little bit. And one of the things that you talked about that really resonated with me was the checklist in childhood. In communities like yours and mine and many communities around the country, we grownups have basically put together a checklisted childhood, which is get our kids into the right schools, which means living in the right neighborhood often, or you know, finding the right independent school that we will send our kids to, right? The right schools, the right classes in the right schools, so the right lane, the right track. We wanna be sure they get the right grades. We wanna give them tutoring. Tutoring used to just be for C's, D's, and F's. Now it's for B's to turn them to A's and A minuses, yeah. A pluses, right? So we're gonna perfect their grades and we're gonna make sure they do all the standardized tests and. We give them test prep if we can afford it. In these communities, we can't afford it. If you can prep, prep, prep for those tests, you get higher scores. Higher scores are typically not a function of their aptitude. It's a function of how much test prep can you afford? And then they need all the accolades to get into the right college and all the awards and all the leadership they have to do and the sports and the activities and the community service. It's like, check the box for community service. Kids, show them you care about others, preferably very far from here, you know? <laughs> And it's all designed to- Stressful. You're stressing yeah. me out, man. That's a lot. Stressful, Maria. This is all in furtherance of what colleges seem to want. And so we have this narrow vision of the right colleges. A lot of people believe US News is like the be all and end all college list. It's BS as a list. Malcolm Gladwell has just written about this this week. It is just the most- irrelevant set of data that go into ranking colleges and keep perpetuating a certain set of colleges being at the top of the list. So, but we do it because we've been told you got to get your kid to one of these places and they require a perfect, a perfect 
flawless childhood. And so the checklist in childhood is designed to please a college admission dean. And the trouble is just in me telling it, you're stressed out in me telling it I'm exhausted. Yeah. It's an exhausting childhood and it wears our children out. It makes us weary because of course they're not perfect. They can't possibly achieve all the items on the checklist without our tremendous involvement, which means we are helping them live their lives. We don't have a healthy, flourishing adult life. Our primary partnership, if we have one, suffers. Our friendships suffer. Our work is like, okay, you know, I got to deal with my work and my kids like our lives are fragile and frail as well because it takes so much effort and energy to micromanage someone else's life to perfection in order to get into the so-called right college parents have become fixers yeah. we want to fix everything make sure everything's right so as kids go through and experience life you know disappointments heartaches heartbreaks all of that stuff we're in there trying to get them back on track and get it all right but what is this doing to them emotionally? Because you talk about getting to college and everything, and that's all based on academics and IQ. But what about that emotional IQ? That is so important. You asked at the outset, why did I get into this? And I was seeing the stuff on my campus, very accomplished young people, but I could tell that those who were overhelped, that something was not quite right. And I'm not a psychologist. I couldn't say like, you have depression or you have anxiety, but researchers have started to correlate an over-involved parenting style with anxiety and depression and less executive function in kids. So the sum total of that heavily suggests that when we overhelp, even though we lovingly intend it, and I do say we, because we haven't even gotten to the stories of how I've overparented my own kids. I am sure. Yeah. I can critique it, but I'm also, I'm, I'm very compassionate for, about parents doing it because I've been doing it, okay? We do it lovingly and yet it undermines their agency. When we do it for them, it's like telling them, oh, you can't handle being a fourth grader. I better take care of business for you. Mm -hmm. oh, you won't succeed at the science fair. I need to do your project. Like what? It undermines their sense of their own ability to do stuff. It really robs them of developing a healthy self and that means they have a greatest greater propensity for anxiety. We act like everything's so high stakes. Why wouldn't they be anxious? We act like if you don't get a perfect score on this piece of homework, you won't have the right future. Of course, they're stressed out of their minds. And depression can come from the sense of, I, you know, I don't have control over what happens in my life. Things just happen to me. Um, so this is harming their mental health, which is very, very concerning, of course. Um, what we're supposed to do is parent for the long view, know that they're not going to be perfect today or tomorrow or next year. It's not about perfection. To win at life is to know that learning and growing is how life works. Yeah. Okay. We're, when they when something goes wrong, we're not supposed to try to fix it. We're supposed to sit with them and say, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry that happened to you. Are you all right? How are you feeling? We're supposed to have a detachment where we're caring, but we're not like, oh my God, I need to handle that. We have a healthier relationship with our nieces and nephews, with our best friends' kids. When we're over at those people's house, let's say your nephew or niece comes home from high school and you happen to be there it's a Friday afternoon and they come bursting in the door and they slam the door and say, well, I guess I failed chemistry. Okay, you're gonna be like, oh no, come here, buddy. Come here, are you all right? Kids, so great to see you. You know, sit down, how you doing, right? If you're the parent, you're more likely to be like, what do you mean we're failing chemistry? How could we be failing chemistry? We, we, we. You know, 
I need to call the teacher. What do you mean? Right. The parent acts like it's their chemistry. Yeah. The auntie, uncle, best friend, mentor takes an interest in the kid and expresses just love. And then let me know if I can be of help. I know a thing or two, but you've probably got this. You're mm-hmm. signaling, I'm not worried. I love you. This will be fine. That's actually the healthier way to approach um, the routine problems our kids will experience in childhood. We have swim team and we have this and we're in the play and we're going to Harvard. And guess what? No, you're not. It's the kids. So time to back away so that they can do it themselves. Okay. There are for sure parents out there right now who are going, okay, I hear what you are saying. And oh, this is me. This is me. I am her. What do I do? What do they do? What do we do? (laughs) To recognize it is step one. Congratulations. Good job. Um, And I'm going to own up to your viewers and say my aha moment was I came home for dinner one night and cut my 10 year old's meat. This was after giving a speech to college parents about you got to let go of your 18 year old and then I'm cutting the meat of my 10 year old. And that's how I knew I was complicit in the very problem that I am concerned about. And that's when I really leaned into solutions. So here's what we got to do. We got to stop saying we, we got to say my child, my son, my daughter. Okay. Let them have their experiences. You have your get a life and your kid can get one too is shorthand for that. Okay. Stop arguing with all of the teachers, principals, heads of school, coaches, umpires, referees, and teach your child how to ask questions of authority figures, how to advocate for their own needs, to speak with respect, but also to self-advocate. Stop doing their homework. You should not be up all night with a glue gun. You should not be changing. You should not be changing their essays. You should not be uh, doing their math. Teaching them is one thing. Outright doing it where they're not learning anything is plagiarism. It's it's uh, unethical. Okay, don't do that. And then focus on teaching your kid every skill. There's a four-step method. It's on my website, JuliethCottHames.com, for teaching any kid any skill. First, you do it for them. Then you do it with them. Then you turn the tables and watch them do it. And finally, they can do it alone. Okay, this four-step method is key. You don't just go from holding your kid on your hip or your body and then set them down and expect them to just go and live their life. You have to practice step two, which is you're holding their hand and teaching them how to cross the street. And step three, you're still there, not holding their hand, but you're there just in case they jump out to cross the street too quickly. Step four, they can be crossing the street without you, but you can see that you need steps two and three, the teaching steps in order for them to learn the skill. And that applies to everything. We're going to take a quick break, but first, a huge shout out to our sponsors, Hood Sour Cream. Hood Sour Cream is made from high quality hood milk and cream, so I know I'm giving my family the good stuff. And I love using Hood Sour Cream in my jalapeno grilled poppers, and I am always the head of the summer barbecue with these guys. So Julie, I think we have successfully established that this helicopter style of parenting is not great for the kids. How many of us feel totally lost when our kids uh, graduate high school and leave home? Empty nest. More, More so than ever, people are distraught. Why? Because their whole life has been about micromanaging their kid's life. So when the kid isn't there, they sort of feel where, what happened to my life? I have no purpose now. 
And that's something we want to really avoid at all costs. You have a child, you may have many children. That's amazing. They are a part of your life, but you're supposed to be leading this healthy, vibrant adult life where you have work and hobbies and relationships and friendships and things you're passionate about. Your kid is not your passion. Your kid is not your project. Your kid is not your pet. You're supposed to be, we are supposed to be role modeling what a healthy adult life looks like so our children can go out there and want to have one themselves, right? We want to make a adulthood looks so amazing that they want to go out and grab it instead of feeling like, my God, adulthood seems like such a pain. They're always so stressed and anxious. So it's really good for everyone in the family ecosystem. When we take some time for ourselves to be in friendship, to be in relationship, we need to be going away with our primary partner, husband, wife, spouse, partner, whatever your person is. That relationship needs nurturing too. Why? Because your kids need to see what a loving adult relationship looks like so they can aspire to have it themselves. Everything you do is role modeling, even the self-care. No wonder that people are freaking out when the kids, you know, fly the coop because not only are they, you know, they're missing the kid, but they're, they've lost a job because parents, like you said, are concierges now. And so they're out of a job and they're just totally, totally lost. In the back of my book, How to Raise an Adult, um, the last couple of chapters are daring to be the parent who can parent differently. And I talk about how to talk with other parents who are inclined to overparent, how to respond to those um, impulses with them in a way that's respectful, but clear about your own values. Uh, Look, we're not trying to be neglectful. Many of us who are Gen X um, or older millennials were raised with parents who were very hands-off to the point of neglect. Nobody's advocating for neglect. We're just trying to move the pendulum a little bit back toward the center here because we've gone in this direction of you will never be out of my sight. And that's unhealthy for kids. And it's unhealthy for us. All of this GPS tracking of kids, not healthy. A little bit less, a little bit less is more. This was amazing. I can't believe our time is up, but so real quick, I want to see what you're working on next. I'm sure it's very exciting. Well, my new book is Your Turn, How to Be an Adult. This is the companion to the overparenting book, not to presume every young adult has been overparented, but this is me. It's sort of like me being a college dean on the page, rooting for anyone emerging into adulthood. Like, yes, you can. I know it's challenging. Yes, it's scary, but it's also delicious to be in charge of yourself. So let me be here and support you with this book, help you get unstuck in the ways you might be. And then my next book is going to be a mother-daughter memoir co-written with my 82-year-old mother because we all live together. And that's been quite a lot and also amazing. And we're going to spill the tea. Oh my gosh. Bills on that one. Julie, thank you so much. This was an amazing conversation. I appreciate you. I appreciate your time. Thanks so much for being on Mom to Mom.